All right, you ready for the Word of God this morning? All right, well, this morning we're continuing in our new series on the book of Esther. Last week we looked at how the book of Esther fits in with redemption history, and we also began to look at chapter 1, and we saw that um, it was a very disturbing world in chapter 1 of Esther, a world that was governed by and given over to expressions of the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Those who were ruling and in charge had no fear of God, no care or concern for God's people, no concern for doing what was right. All they were concerned about was their own advancement and glory and power and authority. But we also saw that God is in control. In spite of what looked like to be out of control outwardly, God was in control. And he had prophesied this time, and he knew what was going on, and he wasn't surprised by anything. And so when we left off the story at the end of Esther chapter 1, King Xerxes, he's just finished these 180 days of showing off and boasting about all of his wealth, all in preparation for a planned invasion of and then after this was immediately followed by this seven-day all-out, no-holds-barred, drunken banquet for everyone in the city. And then on the last day, at the very last moment, Vashti embarrasses him by refusing his request to present herself before the men of the banquet so that they could gaze at her beauty. And the king of the nobles was so praised that they removed her from her position and banished her from the king's presence forever. And that's where we were as we begin looking at now chapter 2 this week. And here we're going to see our heroes mentioned for the first time. And as we progress, we're going to continue to see the hand of God working behind the scenes. That's why this whole series is called Behind the Scenes, right? The Esther story. We see the hand of God continue to work. And as we do, we'll also continue to see a number of truths expressed in, uh, that are expressed in other parts of the Bible illustrated for us in this story. And so this story serves as an example to us to encourage us, to lift us up, and to strengthen our faith, our hope, and our trust in God. So would you bow in prayer quickly with me as we are about to uh, uh, look at the Word of God? Would you say this prayer aloud with me? Dear Jesus, give me ears to hear what you're saying to me, and give me eyes to see what you're doing in my life. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, now, you may remember that last week I said uh, that though God's name is not mentioned in this book, his fingerprints are all over it. And as we unpack chapter 2, we're going to see three clear, pristine, God-sized fingerprints that are left in this chapter for us to consider. And that is, we see three different ways God working behind the scenes to accomplish his will and his purposes and what appears to be just the natural uh, random occurrences and events. The first is the manner of providing for a new queen. The second is the fact that Esther even became queen. And the third involves the providential uncovering of a plot against the king. So let's unpack each one of these individually. Okay, the first idea is this. Uh, the first God-sized fingerprint is seen in the manner of selecting a new queen. It's described in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. So let's unpack it together. Beginning in church, uh, verse 1. It says this, Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Okay, so let's stop there for a second. Now, look at that word, later. 
You know, often the Bible, it'll use a word like that, it'll say later or then, and you don't know how much time has passed. Sometimes it's not much time, and sometimes it's a lot of time. In this case, when it says the word later, it's about four years later. And we know that because in chapter 1 it says that the, the banquet happened in the third year of Xerxes' reign. And in this chapter, a little later on, it says that Esther is made queen in the seventh year of his reign. So it's four years later. We know from history that Xerxes became king around 486 BC and had that banquet probably around 483 BC. And so Esther becomes queen around 479 BC. And so if you're not paying attention to dates, it's easy to kind of read the book of Esther as though all the events kind of happen one on top of the other. I asked a couple of people this past week, uh, how long do you think the, the events of the book of Esther lasted? And they said, well, maybe several months, maybe a year. How many of you thought maybe it was like several months? All right. Uh, but we see here that it was actually um, uh, four years between chapters one and two. And also between chapters two and three, did you know there's another five years? Because by the time Haman is introduced, um, it says that we are now in the 12th year of Xerxes' reign. So the whole um, idea, take, the whole book takes probably 9 or 10 years or so to accomplish. And now you might say, well, so what, Pastor Paul? What in the world does that have to do with the price of bagels in the Persian Empire? Well, the important thing that this tells us, and the original readers as well, is that this is actual history. This is not just an allegory or, or some short story to, to try to teach a lesson, right? Uh, the careful attention to all of these important details and dates and names of not only the king and the queen, but also to all of these officials that would have been known during that day shows us that um, the author is not just telling an inspiring story, but he's giving us a history. This is the actual history of God intervening in the affairs of men, the actual History of God working behind the scenes. And that strongly implies to us that he still works behind the scenes today. You may feel like sometimes you're wondering where is God and how is he working, but God is still working behind the scenes today. So four years have passed as we come to this chapter 2, and this four-year time frame uh, fits well with what we know of history. Remember we said he was planning for an invasion? Well, history tells us that in 481 BC, this Xerxes did indeed invade Greece unsuccessfully, and he returned around 479, completely humiliated and embarrassed by this defeat. And so we come to this passage here, and uh, it says that he remembered Vashti, and what he had done, and what he had decreed about her. And the idea here is that he's missing her. He may be regretting what happened to her. He may be thinking, you know, I, I may have been hasty with, with, with my decision, regretting his decision to banish her. He may be even thinking about ways to get her to return. Now, if that had happened, that would have been very bad for those seven officials who had advised the king to have her banished. I mean, if you were one of those officials, you do not want to see Vashti return. All right, that would have been very bad. And so, and so comes this rather unusual suggestion in verses 2 to 4. Let, let's read it together. It says, Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm, to bring all of these beautiful women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. 
Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This is by appeal to the king, and he followed it. Now, I want you to notice several things about this passage, okay? First, if you were a young woman or the parents of a young woman, this was not a great time in the kingdom for you. I mean, look what's happening here. This is, this is serious. They're serious about this search. There are commissioners. That is, government officials, people who can act with the authority of the king, who are set up in every province with the express purpose of finding these beautiful young women. In other words, they're the guy whose government job it is to come into your home and inspect your daughters to see if they should be carried off to the king in Susa. Now, this wasn't a beauty contest. You can do some reading, and there may be some people who suggest that this is a beauty contest that, that these young women were entering. There's nothing here that suggests this was some type of voluntary beauty contest that they were, that they were entering. That's not what's going on at all. This is the king's commissioners in every province going door to door, finding the most beautiful young woman and compelling them, in most cases, against their will to become part of the harem. This would not have been something to be excited about. I mean, consider for a minute, what if it was your own daughter? I mean, you're never going to see her again. They're taking her to Susa, to the king's harem. And, the, and not only that, with the most beautiful women of 127 provinces being taken, it's kind of unlikely that your daughter's going to be the one that's chosen to be queen. All right, and, and what if you were that young woman? You're being separated from your family. You'll never have a family of your own. You're going to live a lonely life in the harem, and the only time you see the king is when you need to service his needs. I mean, that's how it worked. So probably there were many parents, I think I would have been among them, who would hide their daughters and, and, and risk the punishment from, the king, from lying to the king's officials. Probably there were others who found any eligible young man who was available and married them off quickly so they could stay, stay near them. Thankfully, that's not about to happen here. I mean, this was not something to be excited about. It was a selfish move that benefited the king and brought a lot of heartache to a lot of people. And so the next notice about this is that this idea is very unusual. Now, normally, there would have been princes, either in Susa, in the capital city, or princes of the various provinces who would buy to have one of their daughters become the next queen. And this would benefit the prince because it would, it would strengthen his position in the kingdom, and it would benefit the king as well because it strengthened his relationship with that province. And, but what in the world does selecting an unknown virgin do? I mean, it doesn't benefit anybody in the natural. Some think it's possible that the nobles were so afraid of Vashti coming back that uh, they didn't want it to have anything to do with royalty at all. Um, others um, think that maybe the king also, realizing he was manipulated in the past, didn't want these nobles to be manipulating him in the choice of the, uh, of the queen, and he, it was just an end towards that. But whatever the outward natural reasons were for choosing this method of finding the queen, the author wants us to see that it is God at work behind the scenes. This is now the second suspicious coincidence in this story that suggests that God interferes in the affairs of men. The first was the unusual banishment of Vashti, and the second is the very unusual method they select for choosing a new queen. 
And then lastly in these verses, before we move on, I want you to see this. When we say that God is working behind the scenes to accomplish his will, we do not mean to say or imply that God is causing sin or that God is promoting bad behavior or condoning bad behavior in order to accomplish his will. It simply means that without being the author of any of this sin or bad behavior, God so directed these people in this situation that decisions are made that accomplish his purposes. All right, God isn't the author of sin. He's not causing it. He didn't cause Xerxes to be so given over to the lust of the flesh. He did that all on his own. He didn't cause this plan that would separate so many from their loved ones and families. But it does mean that as long as these people are acting this way, God is going to cause decisions that will bring about his will. It doesn't matter how ungodly people or rulers uh, become, they cannot thwart God from accomplishing his will and his purposes. And God had willed to save these people. And God has this in motion here. Even before anyone can see the problem, I mean, it would be another five years before the problem manifested itself, but God was already moving to answer the problem. God so worked in this method of selecting a new queen. And then next, the next fingerprint I want you to see, God working behind the scenes, is the selection of Esther as queen. Pick it up in verse 5. Let's look at it here. It says, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Ger, son of Shimei, the son of Kish. Now you may ask, well, why the whole genealogy here? Well, the Jewish people were often very concerned with their lineage because they were concerned with their identity as a people. And they were especially concerned uh, with that during this time of the exile and return to Jerusalem. You can see this in the genealogies in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, it, that's what made them eligible to go back to Israel. As a matter of fact, they were so concerned about it that there was this group of people that knew they were priests, descended from priests, but they couldn't prove it by their genealogies. And so it says that they were restricted from being in, in the priesthood. The genealogy is what proved you were legit. And so the author is saying that this guy Mordecai is legit. If anyone doubted his Jewish lineage, they could look at his gene genealogy and see that he was really Jewish. And going on, so there was this Jewish guy named Mordecai whose ancestors had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And among these, those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Okay, so Mordecai's great-grandfather Kish taken the captive to Babylon in the year 597. And the family ends up all the way in Susa. And this guy Mordecai ends up working at the king's palace. We know that because of three things in this chapter. First, um, it says that he's in the citadel. And then second, in verse 11, we find them near the courtyard of the harem. You couldn't get near there if you were just some Joe, right? Just some guy, right? You had to have access to the king's palace to get anywhere near there. And then in verse 19, it says he's sitting at the king's gate. That's where some of the king's officials would sit whenever they had business to do. And so um, he's working at the palace. And uh, he wasn't one of the most powerful nobles, but... He did have somewhat, probably something of an important job. And there are some historical references that may indicate he was even uh, one of the king's accountants. And, and this shouldn't really surprise us at all, that Mordecai or maybe even some other Jews were working at the palace. Just think for a minute, 
it wasn't too long before this that Daniel was the highest official in the land for three kings, Babylon and the Babylonian Empire, and then in, the, in this Medo-Persian Empire for Cyrus and for um, Darius, Xerxes' father. And he promoted people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to important positions. And, and so it would be very likely that he also uh, promoted other uh, trustworthy Jewish people to jobs within the king and the king's palace. So it shouldn't surprise us at all that, that Mordecai is working in the king's palace here. And so going on in verse 7, it says this. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So here we see this, this close relationship that Mordecai and Esther have. He's her cousin, but really he's her father. He's like a father to her, and she's like a daughter to him. And going on now, verses 8 and 9, it says, When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. How many of you women would like seven attendants every day, helping you get ready? I don't know. That sounded like a mixed reaction. I'm not sure. So she pleased him and won his favor. So already we see the hand of God beginning to move in this. I mean, why should he favor her? Of all of the multitude of beautiful young women who are coming into the harem, why in the natural should she be favored and noted? Well, in the book of Proverbs, it says this. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Here God is beginning to favor Esther. God turns the heart of this official to favor Esther, and we see the beginning of her ascension. Now, one more observation here, and then we'll move on. When God begins to favor you, how many have ever been favored by God? All right? If you're in Christ, you're all favored by God. All right? When God begins to favor you, in one way or another, the best thing to do is to acknowledge God's hand and begin to ask about his purposes. It would have been a mistake for Esther to begin to get impressed with herself and start to think this was all about her and begin to think, wow, I must be more beautiful than all of these other women. I must really be the best. You know, I must really be something. You know, when God begins to favor you, it's a mistake to start thinking, you know what, I must really be something. I really am deserving of all of this stuff, all right? That would be a mistake. And now I know a lot of us struggle with the idea that, that we're the center of the universe and everything revolves around us, right? And, and even God is out there revolving around us, all of my wants, all my desires, all of my needs, just making sure that I'm all good and that I'm taken care of and nothing's bothering me, you know? Uh, it's not just teenagers and sopranos who feel that way. God bless you. I love you, Sopranos. All right? <laughs> what are the Sopranos here? 
But we can all be subject to that sometimes. We get this idea that, you know, the world is revolving around us, and if something just doesn't make sense for our world, then oh my goodness, what is the problem? What what is happening? And you know, we can sometimes make the same mistake as that donkey that Jesus was riding into Jerusalem when they were shouting praises and waving palm branches, and the donkey looks up and says, Wow, all this for me? <laughs> can I just tell you something? Uh, this is going to help us all, I think. You are not the center of the universe. All right? There, I, I said it, okay? You are not the center of the universe. Not everything that happens in this world is about you. I know that may come as a shock, but trust me, the quicker you come to realize that, the better you're going to be able to handle life as it comes at you. You know, and I must really take a, a moment at, the, at this time to issue an apology. You know, on behalf of pastors everywhere, sometimes, you know, we, we inadvertently may be giving you this idea that you're the center of the universe. Because we love to say things like, you know, God loves you so much and he has such a wonderful plan for your life. You know, and sometimes that can come across very me-centric. Like, you know, oh my goodness, I didn't know God was so much all about me. You know, and I think it would be better to say that God loves you with an everlasting love and he wants you to be part of his wonderful plan in the world. When you come to Christ, it's really not about you making a decision to accept Jesus. It's more about Jesus' willingness to accept you, coming humbly on your knees, saying, God, I need you. God, will you accept me? God, uh, I can't earn my way to heaven. I can't deserve my way to heaven, but I, I need you, and I believe Jesus died for me on the cross. Would you accept me? Really, God is at the center of the universe. It's about his plan. The universe we brought around him. So when you see yourself being favored, acknowledge the hand of God. Be thankful for it and look for God's purposes in it. And so continuing in verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background Mordecai, because Mordecai had forbidden her not to. All right, going on, verse 11. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening. Okay, so he's still very concerned about her. And, and we see here, again, what harem life was like. Because even Mordecai, working in the palace and being very near to her, had no access to her at all. He had to wait for some attendant or eunuch or, uh, to, to come by so he could get some information about her. Verse 12, it says, Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatment prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashkaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless... He was pleased with her and summoned her by name. So, okay, more about harem life here. And, uh, so many of these women would have a one-night stand with the king and then live out their existence, isolated from their families and loved ones in the king's palace. All right, going on. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. Okay, now note here Esther's humility. There's a little bit of humility here. She doesn't know the king and what he's looking for. She doesn't pretend to know more than she does. She just humbly trusts someone who's a little bit more in the know. There's some humility here. Going on, it says, Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. 
She was taken to King Xerxes in the residence in the tenth month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. All right, now, in the natural, I'm sure there were reasons for this. I'm sure Xerxes could have, and probably did, tell some of his other officials all of the stuff that attracted um, him to Esther more than anyone else, right? But I'm going to suggest to you that it's more than just the physical here. I mean, it doesn't say it. I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, we'll find out in heaven. We can all ask, but I think it's probably more than the physical here because by this time, you've seen so many young virgins, and you'd think that they'd all just blur together. They're all the most beautiful women of the kingdom. And it's not that Esther was just so much more beautiful than any of the, all the others. And I suggest that there's something here uh, of this character humility that we just saw in Esther that is at play. Peter said that the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit is a great work in God's sight. I think that Xerxes is noticing it and is different than anyone else. Now, if you think I'm wrong, then God bless you. I still love you. All right? And, but, and we'll find out when we get to heaven. All right? Now, but more, most importantly, once again, what we're seeing here is the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Ultimately, it is God who turns the king's heart towards Esther. Because there's a problem coming for the Jews. And five years before anybody knows it's even there, God knows it's coming, and he places Esther in this position so he can deal with that problem. Have you ever noticed that sometimes in your life, this mundane thing happens, and your life takes kind of a, just a mundane turn? You think this thing happened, and it means nothing, but then years later, that thing that happened becomes really important, and, and you have these, all these other blessings coming, and happening because of that thing that happened back there that you thought meant nothing at all. Am I the only one that that's ever happened to? Is anyone else that's happened to? Yeah, several of you around here. You know, and I bet you some of you, if you went back today and looked back over your life, you'd be able to see some of that. Something you thought was just meant nothing. But now, years later, you can look back and see the hand of God was in that thing before you even knew it was going to become important. Here, five years ahead of time. God is setting this up. The hand of God, of the providence of God. God knows what's coming in your future, and he knows how you, to get you ready for it. All right, going on, verse 17. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave her a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Basically, he wants everyone to like his new queen and uh, have a good experience on the day that she's made queen. Okay, so, so far we've seen two fingerprints of God, right? The unusual method of choosing a new queen and Esther's very unlikely choice to be the new queen. And now finally, we move on to the third fingerprint that we see in this passage. God's working behind the scenes to uncover a plot to assassinate the king. Verse 19, he says, When the virgins were assembled a second time, and we're not sure what this means. Um, uh, some think it means that the king, you know, he was continuing to assemble virgins. And that's not really surprising because he was never monogamous before. He's not going to start now, even though he has a new queen. So going on, Mordecai was sitting at the gate. That is, he had some business before the king at the gate. Probably not earth-shattering business, but some responsibilities to 
uh, take care of. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when she was bringing her up. Verse 21, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Now, we don't know exactly why they wanted to assassinate him, but we can say this is a really high-risk move. I mean, it was not likely that they were going to assassinate the king and then take the reins of the kingdom and rule. More likely, they would be found out quickly, or they'd have to hightail it out of there to the hills and live in the hills, right? And so it's probably not um, power and ambition that's their motive here. And so the thought is, by many, is that it's probably something personal. Some even think that the mention of this second gathering of virgins indicates that maybe it was these officials' daughters who were taken in the second gathering, and so they're angry and upset about it. But either way, they're angry and upset, and they, and they want to assassinate the king. Verse 22, Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. Now, what a coincidence, right? What good fortune that of all people, Mordecai overheard of this plot to assassinate the king. So here again, we see the invisible hand of God at work. We see God providentially working behind the scenes. It was God's providence that Mordecai finds out about this plot and that he now knows someone in a high position of authority that he can tell uh, who will do something about it. Verse 23 says, And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. So this investigation happens. The guards found guilty. They're impaled on these poles. Ask me sometime later. I'll tell you how this has to do with Judas Iscariot. Sometime later on. I don't have time for that right now. So they're impaled on these poles. Verse 23. All this was recorded in the book of Annals in the presence of the king. Now in the natural, this again seems very routine and mundane. It's recorded in the records. And the, it happened. It was recorded. Um, it probably would be forgot about and never read again. But here again we see the fingerprint of God moving in the affairs of men. In at least two ways here. First, God makes sure that it's recorded. No one else could foresee it, but God knew that this information would be pivotal in five years. And then in a final remarkable turn of events, we see that there is no mention of any reward here for Mordecai. Now, one thing we know about this king is he liked to give gifts. I mean, you look at, the, at chapter 1 and all the gift-giving in chapter 1. Um, he liked to give gifts to people. And then when Esther was made queen, all of the gifts that he gave, he liked to give gifts. It seems to be his way of solidifying people's loyalty. But here, there's no mention of gifts or reward for Mordecai for saving his life. Now, that's kind of odd, don't you think? Uh, kind of an odd oversight for this king. And it may have been a little frustrating for Mordecai. I mean, think like you were Mordecai for a minute. You put yourself in harm's way. I mean, you could have done the, the monkey thing, right? See no he evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, and just went and protected yourself. But, but instead, you put yourself in danger by exposing this. The two guards are found guilty and hanged, and then, and, and then nothing. I mean, you might have expected that just a little bit of reward, right? 
I mean, maybe a, a week's bonus pay, maybe a, an all-expenses-paid vacation or something, or, or maybe just even a day off, like someone coming and says, Hey, Mordecai, the king is so thankful to you that he, he says, Go ahead and take the rest of the day off. All right, just or something, right? But nothing. But as we'll see, this later proves to be one of those things that seemed wrong or bad or unjust that eventually becomes the very thing that God uses to accomplish his purposes and his blessing. How many of you have ever experienced that? You think something unjust is happening, and then later on you find out that a blessing came out of that thing that never would have happened without that thing happening. Several of you, right? I bet you a lot of you, if you look back over your life, you'd see there are times you thought something unjust happened or wrong or you didn't like, but eventually a blessing that never would have happened came out of that. So, all right, well, we are going to stop there for now, pick it up next week. With chapters 3 and 4, we're going to pick up the speed a little bit. Um, but I have one simple observation and exhortation that I want you to take away today and apply it to your lives right where you live today. Now, last week we observed that God is in control, right? This week I want you to see that not only is God in control, but He is way ahead of the game. He's way ahead of the game. That's the big idea for today's message. I've often heard Christians say something like, you know, God is never late. He always arrives just in time. And, and this chapter shows us that God is way ahead of the game. He's not rushing around trying to desperately, you know, bring everything together, put everything in place, hoping that the angels come through at the last minute so he can burst through to some unexpected victory just in time. That's not how God works. That's not how he rolls. The end is never in doubt. From an earthly perspective, sometimes it may feel like the end is in doubt. As we progress through the next chapters, it may seem like to Mordecai and to Esther, the end is in doubt. And as you go through your lives, right, and you're dealing with some stuff that sometimes we all have to deal with, there may be times you feel like the end is in doubt. But the truth is, if we could pull back the curtain of heaven and take a little peek, we would see that God is way ahead of the game. He's not rushed. He's not pressed for time. He's not worried. He's not frantic. He's about a hundred steps ahead. As a matter of fact, he's more than that. If you read the end of the book in Revelation um, and find out what the end of the story is, he's, he's 2,000 years ahead of the game. And as we begin to pray, would the prayer councils make their way forward, prayer team and uh, uh, God, thank you for your goodness and for your kindness towards us, for your mercy. Thank you for your word um, here this morning, God. And uh, God, we pray that any who are going through it this morning, you would encourage and lift up, God. God, help us see your invisible hand working behind the scenes. And God, when we can't trace your hand and see what you're doing, help us to trust your heart in our lives, working for the good in everything for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes, God. And now, God, I pray you bless each one, and that those who have needs, God, come and move, God, among us by these altars, and, and move by your Spirit, for in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. God bless you if you're going. If you have a need for prayer, please find one of these uh, uh, people at the altar, and uh, we'll agree with you in prayer. Amen.